Hello, and welcome to A Long Way Down, a Delta Ray Deep Dive. I am one of your hosts, Casey Elaine Wilson, and I am joined, as always, by... Rebecca McNulty. Um, and we are back for, this time, take two and a half or so. <laughs> We've been having some fun audio issues and technical Ooh. issues, um, but I think we're finally starting to get it figured out. If there's any weird choppy editing or weird noises, we apologize. Um, it was totally from, intentional. Yeah, it's an avant-garde style choice, and I don't know why you're judging us so harshly, guys. Also, fair warning, my puppies who were being very sleepy during our most recent attempts at recording are waking up, and so we might be getting some appearances from them again. I apologize. Hi, puppies. Um, but, so, we are back again today um, to talk a little bit more about um, various Delta Ray-related things. We're happily kind of watching the last couple days of the Kickstarter underway. Um, very glad that we're getting that holiday album. That's basically all I've ever wanted in life. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. And we're hoping that. that holiday might have a wide definition, maybe? Yeah, I mean, for me specifically, I just, I think the witchy season needs something. But, you know, we'll see. Well, and we'll I'm, see how I'm just throwing out into the ether that I could really use some Hanukkah music for my locker preparation. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, we're, we're, we've been enjoying that. Looking forward to seeing where it lands before it's Gothic all done. Gothic musical, Southern Gothic musical, Southern Gothic musical. It's Excuse a me, did I say that out loud? We'll see. But yeah, so we wanted today to uh, chat a little bit about Flannery O'Connor and Hitcher Rye. Southern Gothic. And the Southern Gothic, yep. Um, and because uh, this is more Rebecca's wheelhouse than mine to a certain extent, uh, I'm going to turn it over to her uh, and let her kind of do most of the fun conversation. It's so um, much fun, though. I think it's going to be... Yeah, I think it's going to be good. So, Rebecca. <laughs> well, before we get started, Casey, we should probably talk about the Flannery O'Connor song. Yes. I think this nomenclature, by the Flannery O'Connor song, we've always meant Hitch a Ride, but we heard it for the first time, I think, in 2017 at a city winery show in Atlanta, and we didn't have a name for it then. And Casey turned to me and goes, there's a lot of Flannery O'Connor going on in that. And a name was born. And it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to get rid of, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, no. It's a good name. It's a good name. So Hitch a Ride, a.k.a. the Flannery O'Connor song, pairs really nicely with, shockingly, Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, which will be where we're basing a lot of this discussion. So, Casey, when we first introduced this podcast, I talked a little bit about how I like to treat the biographical and historical context of a work in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to just go back and add a little vocabulary to those points. We'll start with what new critics call the intentional fallacy, which is when proponents of new criticism argued that a work should be analyzed based solely, completely, and entirely on its intrinsic qualities rather than anything that might have been surrounding either the circumstances of its creation or the background of its author. This can also be called the biographic fallacy. And since I'm talking about the new critics, it seems remiss to not go into just a little bit of background on the politics of literary theory. Um, when literary theory 
became an actual profession, which did exist for maybe 10 years okay. around the <laughs> 1960s, critics started to promote and get really obsessed with their own brands of theory. So these include things like new criticism, a feminist theory, Marxist theory, a lot of what began as linguistic and psychological movements were sort of uh, amalgamized into moments of literary theory. So Freudian theory and psychoanalytic theory, which are the same thing, but people like to say they're different because the real problem with literary theory is that each of the buzzwords means something a little bit different depending on who's using it and where they're using it, specifically which country or which institution or which year because the definitions changed between years and between professorships. So that's my little bit of buzzword. In the context of a classroom, I like to introduce each of these main theories with the caveat that they are only useful if they support a student's goals for a text. So if a student thinks that reading only the text and pulling its analysis is the best way to form their thesis statement, then they might use a little bit of new criticism. If they think that is something they should avoid, then we avoid it entirely. But it makes some really good closed circuit lessons. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that that's also one of the things that's really smart about that approach is the fact that it also helps students understand that there's value in making choices about what you want to use and how you want to understand yes. something. And, you know, intro to lit classes are strange because there's so much you could cover and you never have even, you know. Oh, trust me. Percentage of the time. Right now, yeah, the intro to lit class I'm teaching, there are no boundaries. It's poetry, fiction, drama from across time periods. That's a lot of stuff, y'all. It's hard to pick. That is a ton of potential possibilities. <laughs> So the joy of teaching instead of, say, writing a paper is that the quote-unquote thesis statement for a lesson is mostly, these are the questions I want to talk about. And students, as Casey had been saying before we started recording, don't always believe us when we say, hey, I have a question, and I don't actually have an answer picked up. Yeah, right. And that's that's something that it, it takes time, and I get it, because I mean, I like to be right, so I understand. But I, I, I for sure, it's definitely something that I, I have to reiterate a lot with my students, especially at the beginning of the semester, that I'm asking a question because I'm not sure I know the what answer I like best. Because there may not be a single answer, but I don't know how I want to decide, interpret it. And also, they're going to have ideas that are way cooler than anything I come up with. They're always way cooler. I know. It blows my mind how like they're like, oh, we don't know how to do I'm like, no, you're... You just like cha completely changed how we think about this book. So thanks for that. <laughs> Let me take my own notes. Now, I always have a notebook up on my desk. It's just like, all right, everyone, you know, pause. I need to write that. So the questions I would pose for a lesson considering Hitch Ride and a Good Man is Hard to Find. And I should point out that the only reason I like to look at texts in conjunction with each other, and I'm treating Hitch Ride as a text in this case, is that 
it creates new questions for the subsequent stories. So reading Hitch a Ride brings up questions that we can pose to a good man is hard to find and vice versa. And sometimes the more questions, the more cool answers we get. And my only goal in life is to leave you more confused than when you started. Right. If you if you're walking out with more questions than you had when you started, that's you're doing you're doing it right. Exactly. So the questions I would like to ask are, which shared themes do each of these texts use that help to inform the other? And the way I am framing this is drawing heavily on Dr. Monica Miller's forthcoming feature called Only Southerness, Flannery O'Connor and R.E.M., yeah. Before she jumps into that, I just want to say sure. for the record that uh, Monica Miller is fabulous. Um, she and I used to work together at Georgia Tech, and she is a brilliant scholar. Um, and if any of the ideas we talk about you know, today sound interesting or compelling in any way, I recommend um, checking out her book, Being Ugly, Southern Women Writers and Social Rebellion. Um, it's a really great reading of how ugliness is used by a lot of these Southern writers for more complicated ends and means than we might think. Um, and she talks and about it's such a good title. Oh, it's such a good title. Uh, and she talks a lot about different uh, authors that may even come up today and in, in our conversation. So, um, so yeah, well, and I want to extend my thanks for letting me have a copy of this article before yes. it comes out in yeah. an issue of the Flannery O'Connor review on popular music, which sounds really great all on its own. Yeah, no. And, and so, yeah, Monica is instrumental in making this episode happen just by being an awesome scholar and being an awesome colleague. Uh, and so this is my little shout out to her. Um, now back to Thank your regularly you. scheduled academic citation programming. Well, back to my regularly scheduled summary of Dr. Miller's findings. So when R.E.M.'s bassist Mark Miller asked if there are any similarities between his band's music and O'Connor's writing, he answered, only Southernness. Instead of reading that as a dismissive response, as many had, Dr. Miller shows that only Southernness actually describes two primary aspects of what Southernness can mean, which are the character-driven storytelling kind of Southernness, and also the Southern Gothic, the Christ-haunted South, to which both O'Connor and R.E.M. respond pretty explicitly. I'm going to borrow those criteria and then step away from Dr. Miller's article, but everyone should go and read it in case they have any interest in any of the things that we're talking about. It's really fabulous. And think a little bit about Gothic literature more generally, which is writing that highlights elements of fear, like horror and death, but paired with the more romantic elements of nature individual characters and emotion. The Southern Gothic, as Dr. Miller describes it, pairs horror and nature in the backdrop of a Christ-haunted South, and we see that a lot in works of William Faulkner, Ralph Ellison, many others. And to that definition of the Southern Gothic, I'd also like to add race-haunted and haunted by the Civil War, both of which I'm borrowing from Susan Belay's article, Flannery O'Connor Resurrected. Now, some people include Eudora Welty in the Southern Gothic umbrella, but in an interview with Alice Walker, she said they better not call me that for an example of the intentional fallacy at work. And a fun question for students is to ask if something like Welty's vehement objection should influence our own categorization of the text, or if that's something we should 
take with a grain of salt. Right. Well, and that's, and I'm, I'm not going to get too far down a rabbit hole on this, but that's, that's also a lot of the question that I ask uh, myself in my scholarship is, you know, to what extent should things like categorizations be dictated by the person who wrote the text, by the editor who edits the text, by the publisher who publishes it, by the readers who read it, right? And that all of these things come together. And, and I love that example as, as an example of that question, because there's not just like a rejection of the category. There's a rejection and a judgment of the category built in there yes. simultaneously. And I think that that makes for really fun conversations about, you know, does it matter if she hates the genre, if she accidentally wrote in it, can she have <laughs> accidentally written in it at all? Right. All of these things that, and there are also things that students will end up with really strong opinions about that they maybe didn't know that they had. You'll find teams developing on these sorts of conversations sometimes. Those are the best opinions. Yeah. And a few things that teachers should consider if they're going to be teaching down this rabbit hole that I don't have time to cover now, but really need to be developed, particularly depending on the grade level a teacher might be experiencing, is the intersection of low and high culture. Um, the grandmother in A Good Man is Hard to Find is extremely racist, and she says some very problematic things. So there are resources on using sensitive language in the classroom. Depictions of domestic violence, judicial practices in 20th century American courts, and the values of the antebellum South, and more particularly antebellum plantation values. So not, you know, anything big there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's there's so but. little that you can talk about when you're looking at Flannery O'Connor's work. It's just a real, oh, yeah, no, real parsity. It's, it's so closed circuited. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to hone in on the way that narrative perspective in each of these pieces shifts internally and opens up between individual characters and the larger Southern Gothic to examine condemnation of social violence. And the definition of social violence I'm using is physical violence versus emotional violence, which we are going to see a lot in the characters of the grandmother and the misfit and hitch a ride just as a song. So a quick summary of the two texts I'm using, and this is my general warning for spoilers. Haven't listened to a good, haven't listened to hitch a ride. Haven't read a good man is hard to find. If you want to experience them fresh, please pause immediately. Pause. I'm still here, though. Okay, I'm glad you're still here because you've done both of these, so you can't be spoiled for I mean, them. sure. Spoiler culture will be a whole nother podcast. Continue. But if anyone besides the two of us are still here. Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find is a story about a grandmother, her son and daughter-in-law, and their children leaving Atlanta on vacation. They're going to Florida, but the grandmother really doesn't want to go to Florida. So she's doing everything she can to try to redirect the trip to Eastern Tennessee. I mean, that, I mean, as someone who just moved out of Atlanta and before that lived her whole life in Florida, that checks out is the thing. It's like the one thing I agree I... with her on in this whole mess. <laughs> she needs to have more elements of gray. 
it's not a bad thing. Uh, the family meets an escaped convict who calls himself the misfit, whom O'Connor uses to show the hypocrisy represented by the grandmother's perceived moral standing. The misfit believes that he's been unfairly punished by the law, and that belief has skewed his judgment so badly that he now believes he has no choice but to kill any obstacles he encounters because crime is crime and punishment is punishment, and he's going to get punished anyway. So why not, you know, murder a whole family in the woods? Spoilers. I told you. <laughs> O'Connor calls very few characters by a proper name. Uh, the grandmother is a archetypal representation of this kind of character. Considers herself a lady of breeding and importance. She dresses up for the car ride, including lace trim and a navy blue straw hat. So in case of an accident, anyone seeing her dead on the highway would know at once that she was a lady. That's fair. Anytime I see someone in a hat, I'm like, that's a lady. Mm-hmm. And the whole dead on the highway thing is foreshadowing to what comes next, which is when the first of her family is led into the woods to be shot, the grandmother reaches to adjust her hat rim as if she were going to the woods with them. But it comes off in her hand. Uh-oh. As if the illusion of her high moral standing is also crumbling. Oh, no. It's possible. I know. What I love so much about this story is that there are no throwaway words. I'd read this years ago, and I read this for this episode, and was just sort of giddy the whole time through, because there are no words that are written accidentally. There's nothing that doesn't have two or three different allegorical purposes, and it's so much fun to read. And so my very favorite part is that the grandmother hides a cat, and no characters are named in the story, Casey. I think four but the cat is named Pity Singh, and it's so good. <laughs> so Pity Singh is hiding on a basket in the grandmother's lap because he would miss her too much if she was gone, and she was afraid, and I quote, he might brush up against one of the gas burners and accidentally asphyxiate himself. Listen, I have to have that conversation with my dogs every time I leave the house. I know. Gas burners and asphyxiation are a cat thing, so I'm not sure why you're dealing with it dogs one of my dogs was raised by a dog who was raised by a cat it's fine that explains it (laughs) so the grandmother finally convinces her son to turn in search of an old plantation manor that she's describing from when she visited as a young woman and then right when they turn down an abandoned dirt road she realizes is actually in tennessee but she doesn't tell anyone that she just figures they're just gonna keep driving it'll be fine maybe they'll end up in eastern tennessee by the end of it And after a couple miles on this overgrown abandoned road, Pity Singh leaps out of his basket into her son's lap and the car flips over. Yep, because you should have just let the cat drive in the first place. This is the moral to all of our podcasts. Mm -hmm. That's how we should end every episode. Remember, let the cat drive. (laughs) I don't want the liability. (laughs) So throughout the story, the grandmother's been lamenting about the state of the world, how, in her opinion, Europe was entirely to blame for the things, the way things were now, and how much better things had been in the days that are, and I quote, gone with the wind, she said with a laugh. When there were plantations and slavery and children were more respectful of their native states and their parents and everything else, when people did right. Yes, because my definition of people doing right is... 
people having slaves. Apparently. And this is one of the moments with the grandmother. And I'm actually not delving into the more problematic things that she's saying. But everything she's saying is dripping with racist undertones. She is condescending. She is full of herself. She is convinced, despite the fact that all she does is try to pull people around her down, she is the height of moral fiber. And those black and white definitions that really don't apply are what make the story such an interesting comparison to both the misfit and Hitcherite. So after the car flips, the family is sitting in the woods and a car approaches. And sure enough, it's the misfit and his crew. They take the family into the woods and summarily execute them one by one. But the grandmother stays by the car. And O'Connor stays in the grandmother's point of view. The whole story is told in a first-person limited point of view through the grandmother's eyes. Up until the moment of the grandmother's death, she reaches out to the misfit and he shoots her. And the perspective changes so that if we're in the grandmother's eyes when she dies, the story should sh- excuse me. If we're in the grandmother's eyes when she dies, the story should stop immediately. But suddenly we're watching her through the misfit. And O'Connor uses that shift in perspective to compare the grandmother's classist racism against the religion she is attempting to evangelize right before her death. The grandmother considers herself a lady of great standing, and she can't see any faults in herself or her attitudes. But the misfit, despite the fact that he is literally killing an entire family, not technically, he is ordering the killing of an entire family, he says, I ain't a good man, but I ain't the worst in the world either. He is representing a shade of gray despite these egregious acts that the grandmother is incapable of seeing in her own moral fiber. Right. And because that's something that, you know, she is enacting a particular kind of violence that doesn't look like the violence we've codified into law. Right. And so he's, he's enacting the violence of I am murdering someone and we have explicitly noted that as bad um, and worthy of, you know, judicial punishment um but the you know the grandmother is there grappling with the you know kind of not even grappling right she's ignorant of the fact she is allowing right, us to exactly, grapple with um that uh, of the fact that her mindset her speech her actions are just as violent it's just a violence we don't see um you know kind of manifesting in the same way So the moral relativism between everything being black and white and shades of gray actually leads us into a great transition into Hitch a Ride, which is the story of a man and a woman who conceive a child in the spring before the summer heat. The song begins in the second person, inviting the listener to share in the first person story a narrator is about to tell. Now, many examples of the Southern Gothic personify places like, say, the Piedmont Plains, where it runs hot in the summer on the foot of a mountain. I didn't know what Piedmont Plains was until I did that research. (laughs) With the same details and mannerism as characters. In this story, we know that the house is in a presumably small southern town near what we can presume is a major interstate or highway. 
The story then introduces the devil who brings the morning sun, which drives young men insane and makes women want to run away. They take his heat during the long daylight hours in the summer until he lets them see the autumn cup. So in this story, the devil is a passive character infecting the environment, but not the individual characters. The devil's power is in the weather and the seasons, these big abstract themes, but not in the actions that the characters choose to take. The devil doesn't go in and make Jack hit the narrator. The never, devil isn't on the highway with the woman as she's hitchhiking. So by introducing the town and Summer Heat as characters, the narrator, the narrator excuse me, is showing her own feelings of almost helplessness in an abusive relationship. She feels like she has the same control over her relationship that she does over the heat, which is wait until it gets better. But her relationship doesn't get better. And when her partner's abuse reaches its climax, she takes the step forward that she can see and then buries two bodies. For clarification, that second body being that of their child. Um, yes. Because <laughs> that the, the, the moment of crisis comes when, like in the moment of climax comes when he, he has his abuse has turned and taken the life of their child as well. Um, we had some discussion in our first attempt at recording this about whether or not that was uh, a, whether we thought that um, it was a miscarriage or if the pregnancy had, you know, gone to term and they had, had actually had the child, but either way um, it's right. Is that, that she, she bore the brunt of the abuse when it was directed at her. And then when it took on a different form, she saw a different path forward. And the speaker asks, how do you know to put a sick dog down? Where do you go when you cross that line? And that line is the place in both these stories where we have to stop and examine what choice, what desperation, and what morality really means for these characters. Well, and for these characters and also for us, because... And in our in larger society, right? So, like, one of the things that is really notable in, in a good man is hard to find is that we're not being asked to say, "Oh, the misfit is actually a good person," right? He is explicitly a murderer, and that's not okay, right? But one of the things we are asked to do is to make these comparisons and these connections between. So yes, the misfit is a murderer. He has taken the lives of other people. Um, but the grandmother, through her racism, has dehumanized other people, has maybe not taken the physical life of someone, right? But has stripped other people, um, or attempted at least to strip other people of their humanity. Um, and one of the questions that's being asked in that particular instance is, you know, we have decided that one of these is a punishable offense, a criminal offense, right? Understandably and justifiably, but at what point do we draw the line between the two, right? At what point do we say that one is inherently worse than the other? And why do we feel the way we do? And how do we negotiate that? And then with Hitch a Ride, um, what we have is, you know, this woman who has borne the brunt of this abuse, taking an action that 
is on its surface kind of a reverse of what you know he has done to her a retaliation but is also at what point do you kind of hit a limit cross you know cross a line right like at what point does it become something that we understand differently um than just outright abuse or outright murder right absolutely and the settings that both of these stories are creating strip us from the society that makes those decisions explicit right the rule of law that operates in social bands well it, it strips us from that and it separates us from it but it also creates a new very specific one right that like with and and that's i think so much of what the southern gothic does is it takes these things and lays them against this kind of haunted image right as as we talked about and so with with hitch a ride right we get that that line a time or two about there ain't no secrets in a southern town and so the setting the rules are specific to that place and to that version of the world that we're seeing. Um, And I think a good man in this hard to find does a very similar thing, right? Of creating an atmosphere and attention and an environment to a certain extent where for a large part of that story, the world is just inside of that car as they're Mm -hmm. driving. And then the grandmother's world is explicitly inside the car because no one can hear the things that she's saying. She, right. And then, yeah, but then like so much of what happens in that story shifts the moment they get out of the car. Exactly. And my favorite comparison between these two stories is actually right when the car flips, the uh, grandmother's daughter-in-law who has no name. And Connor very explicitly gives maybe three characters, including the cat names, <laughs> because <laughs> she's showing more archetypes than individuals. But the unnamed mother-in-law asks maybe a car will come along right after their accident and a car comes and it's the misfit and hitch ride answers with always another car coming. Right. And that they're both, I, I do love that this parallel that you found though, because it's so, it's so great in that, like they're both also talking about the risk that comes with waiting for that car. Absolutely. Right. Of, you know, in, in a good man is hard to find. It's, maybe another car will come and, or maybe a car will come and then a car cut does come and it's the misfit and they all die. <laughs> but then, you know, in, in hitch a ride uh, towards the end, it's that question of, you know, we're all picking up strangers. And so, you know, you're, who is the danger? Who is the trouble? Who is, you know, what, what risks are there in that moment of mm-hmm. waiting for the next thing to come, waiting for that next traveler to pass through, waiting for that next invasion into your world, even if it just, even if your world is just your car. Absolutely. And Hitch Ride refuses to clarify where the danger lies. We don't know we're in danger when we hitch a ride. The listener of that song knows that this woman is now calling herself a phantom rider, a black widow spider, hitching up the interstate. But if we compare it to this story, is the danger from this woman? Is the danger from the car she's about to enter? And there's no way of knowing that. And that's where that song throws us into the Southern Gothic with no. Right. Well, it, it, it throws us into that. And it also, yeah, le- it leaves and opens all of these questions and it ties back to these other images that they've conjured throughout the song, you know, of um, as you were talking earlier about 
you know, the devil and, and the heat and all of this, that the devil's not the one making them make these choices, but the devil is haunting them. It's constantly there. It's that heat, that relentless, oh, that Southern swamp, just like you step outside and you are in a sauna and there's nothing you can do to escape from it. And then that ending of, you know, she is, you know, out there just kind of hitching rides one place to the next because she can't stay where she was because everyone knows what happened and what she did. It's still also asking that question of, you know, she is continuing to be haunted, but also she is haunting others um, and kind of carrying it forward in that way. Absolutely. And bringing us back to the intentional fallacy, one of the- Which is also foreshadowing for the record, y'all. There's, it's foreshadowing for our podcast, the whole intentional fallacy thing. You'll find out more soon. <laughs> but after a good man is hard to find, reached a gained popularity after people knew about this story, O'Connor published an essay called On Her Own Work, where she explicitly tells us what she intended about both the misfit and the hypocritical old soul that is the grandmother. And she writes again specifically, I don't want to equate the misfit with the devil. I prefer to think that however unlikely this may seem, the old lady's gesture, uh, she reaches out to him right before she's killed like a mustard seed will grow to be a great crow filled tree in the misfits heart and will be pain enough to him there to turn him into the prophet that he was meant to be and then she literally writes but that's another story mm-hmm. and in response i'd recommend uh stanley runner's article called secular meaning and a good man is hard to find where he basically answers that yes, but that is probably another story. Um, that claim is not necessarily supported by the logic of the story's own content. And I think the real problem with that statement is that it's trying to add more of a black and white nuance to the grandmother who was written as this black and white stoic character. And this goes back to, to you know, some, some conversations about the value or lack thereof of something like taking the writer's intentions into account, you know, and um, that this is something that I think about a lot with my own work, right, as, as a writer, because we can try to do things and we can intend to do things and we can think we have done things. And then other people can look at us and say, no, you didn't. <laughs> That was not what you put on the page, right? And, and sometimes that's more significant than others. But that is, you know, you and I have had some conversations about this, about how um, it's about finding that balance, right? When we're working with students or when we're asking them to understand literature of, um, you know, how do you take that in and how do you account for that? And I think the O'Connor piece is a really good example of, maybe someone overreaching a bit in terms of what she can actually you know, support and offer and argue. Um, but that then that raises that question and it makes a really good example of how do you decide what amount of, you know, outside uh, conversation and external authorship to include. Um, and with uh that and where I, I tend to land on it a lot, both for my own work and for um, with my students, is I, I really like 
kind of approaching it as, I love to know that stuff. I think it's fascinating. I think it's valuable, but I don't think it's universally the thing that we have to listen to. Sure. I like to approach it as this is something really interesting for you to disagree with. Right, right. Like this is this is something you can use to understand things or to complicate how you understand things. But it should be a form of another piece of evidence to inform your overall thesis rather than the thesis itself, perhaps. Right. But also that, yeah, like that just that it is this thing of like it exists and it's cool. And if it goes no further than that, awesome. (laughs) You know, (laughs) absolutely. And I think the place I would end this particular lesson, and again, if this were a classroom, not that Casey is not eight students worth of interesting, but oh. we would have probably gone in seven or eight different really interesting tangents at this point. Oh, yeah. So I apologize that we don't get to recreate that experience. Cause I, didn't know I, was so much be, fun. I didn't know I was supposed to be going on tangents. Well, the students don't either. They just do. <laughs> <laughs> But I would close this with a question of how the ambiguity of the words good and bad, and I have a tendency to really harp on those words because they're impossible to find, but when, when they're paired with ambiguity, it's okay. The ambiguity of good and bad contribute to a moment of human interaction where flawed individuals reach out and touch other flawed individuals, physically, metaphorically, in an attempt to make some form of connection. Always another car, always another human connection possible. And how does the ambiguity of the danger those connections pose speak to our understanding of these characters? And I really don't have an answer to that, so if anyone does, I would be happy to hear it. Well, it's the kind of question that I think is you know, most interesting about this and, you know, that idea from earlier on about how we, you know, we're here to ask questions, right? We're here to, to ask these, these things and to figure these things out. Um, one of the really fun things about reading and, you know, media consumption in general is that the answers don't have to be static, right? And, and they can change. And I felt that even with with Hitch a Ride over the past little bit, you know, of, of listening to it is my relationship to, to it changes really often. And that's part of what makes it a really fun song to listen to and to think about and to engage because it, um, you know, there are different pieces that catch me at any different moment or different ways that I think about it or different connections that I make. And also like one of the things that I wanted to note too um, is, you know, in thinking about, the Southern Gothic and then thinking about the South and that use of haunting, right? The haunted, the Christ haunted, the race haunted, the civil war haunted South. Uh, What that immediately made me think of when you gave those definitions was the haunted chapel from Delta Ray's revival um, back in last fall. Um, And so in that instance, Delta Ray did um, every Wednesday for, what was it? 16 weeks length of a semester. That's a whole other. I think it was exactly a semester. Um, that's a whole other conversation we can have. Um, <laughs> but we, uh, but they, every Wednesday they uh, performed at the basement in Nashville and they transformed the space into 
a haunted uh, chapel and they had actors come in and kind of play this you know, priest and these ghost, this ghostly woman and all of these figures kind of coming in and out. Um, and that is something that I didn't realize at the time what was happening that made it for me transition from what could have been really gimmicky and kitschy to something that felt like there was a kernel of really interesting commentary happening. And I realized now it's because it's, it was explicitly playing with that notion of being haunted, right. Of, of what it means to be haunted by the past, by each other, by the things that we don't talk about, by the things that we love or want to love. Right. Um, and so I think that with the, revival like i think that's a really and also the fact that it was called the revival right that's a whole other thing with it too right that there's all of these connotations and insinuations that are happening that tie to these bigger conversations so that's part of why i think we both were drawn to especially with hitch a ride and the connection the obvious connections or um to make to Flannery O'Connor into a good man's but hard to find. Just but the larger conversation of the Southern Gothic and the way Delta Ray is making that into part of their what word am I looking for? Their ethos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that yeah. one. That no, was the word. Yeah, no, but exactly. And that 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 is something that I think and we'll and we'll talk about this more in different contexts um, in later episodes of the podcast too, but I think for me, that's part of what has drawn me to them is that, you know, as someone like I grew up listening to country music and I, you know, grew up in the South, although I have recently moved way more South than uh, I was before, even though I moved North, I'm definitely in the South now. Um, I grew up in neither of these places. I know. But, But for me, part of that connection that I find to their music is that it feels like much of the time they have a a really sharp eyed and clear understanding of these are the environments that have made all of these influences upon us. And, and I think that that's something that sometimes gets lost. Some, sometimes people, whether it's a writer or a band or, or an artist or anything have a tendency to focus a little bit on like, this is the thing that I love. And so I want to respond to that and I think there's also, but I think with, with Delta Ray, one of the things I find is that there's also a little bit more, there is that, but there's also, these are the contexts that make some of the things that have, that I love or that have happened to me or that are, I, I have really complicated relationships with, and we want to untangle those as well. Sure. And from someone with a completely different background, grew up in the suburban northeast listening to no country music ever not for any choice it just wasn't mm-hmm. something that was around me and i have been most drawn almost there's a way of making outsiders feel included in a movement that they have managed to hone in on more than anything so i can walk into a haunted chapel and feel like I grew up in a Southern Gothic background. I'm not sure if anyone grows up in the Southern Gothic. I mean, anyone, you do though, right? <laughs> that's sure. you know, that's the thing. And but it it yeah. opens up a place of 
almost a universal experience that I sure as heck shouldn't be sharing in. And yet I somehow feel like I do. Well, and this is something that I think we will certainly talk about later. Um, Sorry for the crinkling. My puppy just woke up and is readjusting. Hi, puppy. Um, Yeah, that's a good girl. But one of the things that I think has struck me is the way that their Southern Gothic idea, it's really easy to take something like the Southern Gothic and make it this like thing out of time and out of place a little bit. Um, But there are also ways that they're weaving it into different things. Songs like Hands Dirty, for instance, that are, that feel particularly grounded in the moment of time. Um, And so I think that's something that we'll get into a little bit, because I think that that is also really, really valuable. But, uh, but yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap up for today. Um, If you, again, if you have suggestions for topics or, you know, further thoughts or questions or anything like that, uh, feel free to let us know. I am on Twitter at Casey Elaine, C-A-S-E-Y-A-L-A-N-E. Um, I'm on Instagram at Casey.Elaine. Uh, Rebecca? And I am R.L. McNulty, M-C-N-U-L-T-Y. Pretty much everywhere I am. Yep. And uh, we want to thank you all very much for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Absolutely. And you can hold our hands because it's a long way down. Thank you.